1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with the authors of Louisiana Creole People, afro ingenuity and Community. We'll be talking with Daryl Barth and Andrew Julevet, the authors, and they will tell us more about themselves. Hello, how are you doing today?
2: Yeah, we're good. <laughs> Doing well. Daryl, do you want to start? I, I, I do want to just mention our our other co-author, Rain Prudhomme Cranford, uh, who uh, uh, sends our regrets that she has some family things. She can't join us today, but uh, was really instrumental in this work. And she's a brilliant um, literary scholar and a scholar, of, you know, many different fields, but um, this book would not be possible without her. So definitely want to make sure we mention our our, our co-editor here
0: yeah for sure i I was just saying before uh we went on the air that really uh, this probably wouldn't have happened if it weren't for rain to to be quite frank um you know we a few years ago we were all involved together in uh putting together a journal of louisiana creole studies and you know between that time that we came up with that idea and now you know rain moved uh, up to, to Calgary, Andrew moved from San Francisco to San Diego, and I moved from uh, Amsterdam to, to New York. So, I mean, you know, we the, there's been a whole lot of twists and turns. But you know, if it weren't for, for Rain saying, you know what, we put all of this effort in, we might as well publish that as a book, uh, it probably wouldn't have occurred to me. So. Uh, Props definitely go up
2: to to our cousin in Calgary. Yeah, and just for the brief intro, I mean, Rain's an assistant professor of English and International Indigenous Studies at the University of Calgary. Um, Daryl, you're over at, what, History at Dartmouth, right? And uh, I'm at the University of California, San Diego in the Ethnic Studies Department.
1: Tell the audience how you guys are all connected. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Daryl, I think you should tell this story, and it's how we open the book.
0: <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll say this: that anywhere that you have a, a group of people uh, with transgenerational connections in a in a, uh, on, on, in a specific land base, uh, the way that Louisiana Creole people are. Uh, Eventually, what you find is, is that you know, after a few centuries, those people are pretty much all related to one another, whether or not it's by blood or marriage or both. And you know, Rain, Andrew, and I all met out probably at least 10 years ago now, 12 years ago now. It had to be 12, had to be longer, 2008, 2009, sometime around then um but you know we met in online forums talking about louisiana creole history and louisiana creole people and you know any creole person who's listening to this right now will recognize the familiarity of this story it doesn't take long for creole people to be in one room together before they start asking each other you know well what was your mama's name and and who are your people who's your who's your who's your people And, you know, every Creole person has the same sort of response. They'll start rattling off family names until eventually you hit a point where people go, oh, okay, so yeah, I'm related to them. So that Andrew and I are related. We are cousins. We are both descendants of the Gidris. Rain and I are related. We are both descendants of Matwaias from Cane River. And Andrew and Rain are related. these sorts of relationships, you know, we refer to one another as cousins. You know, in Ishak, uh, the, the word, is, the familiar word is Shooky. You know, we are, all, we are all related to one another. And Creole people in Louisiana are different in the way that they interpret words like cousins from people in other parts of the country insofar as, you know, we recognize like fifth and sixth cousins as family where we're from. And you know, that's a thing that's actually that's an indigenous thing. That Indians do Amerindian people do that. Um and that is a, a cultural uh, inheritance that we have from that experience of uh people who are descendants of settlers who indigenized themselves, who intermarried with the people of the land and became part of it and there's a difference between that sort of process and the process of colonial domination that's to be quite frank the sort of bedrock of americanization and anglo-american colonial culture on turtle island you know our ancestors didn't come in and you know proceed to genocide indigenous people so much as they came in and began to intermarry with them and You know, from enslaved Africans to enslaved Amerindian people to working class French and German and Spanish and Maltese and Filipinos uh, who all ended up occupying the same spaces over time in Louisiana in these Latin cultural contexts uh, produced us and produced a, a people who can point to a process of ethnogenesis that begins at the beginning of the 18th century, the end of the the 17th century. Uh, And that is complete by the time that the United States colonizes the Louisiana Territory after 1803. And this book is our attempt to contextualize what that process looks like once you drag it out of that sort of historical yesteryear stuff uh, that most people associate with uh, conversations about Creolite, you know, like, oh, Creole, Louisiana, that was a thing from the 1700s and the 1800s, you know, uh, uh, the Civil War made us all, you know, Americans. Well, you know, certainly that is one view of the story of Creole people in Louisiana. But, you know, when you look at primary source accounts of Creole people from the first half of the 20th century, you recognize that, that that's not true. And that Creole people in Louisiana, in particular in New Orleans where I'm from, uh, had, a, had a very strong Creole identity that was uh, intimately connected to a linguistic heritage uh, that was forcibly suppressed through processes of Americanization that include English language-only education and the imposition of Anglo-American racial paradigms, that is, the sort of stark contrast between Black people and white people, uh, that never really existed under Latin regimes in Louisiana because it just couldn't. Uh, Now, that's my perspective. And I offer the perspective of the historian. I think what's good about this book in particular is that the three editors of the book represent three very distinct sort of vantages of, of scholarly discourse i'm a historian but andrew is a sociologist and a cultural theorist and what that means is that his view on these processes is going to be different from mine if anything andrew provides i think the sort of theoretical frameworks that i use for my historical analysis uh whereas rain as a literary theorist uh i think you know first of all the notion of the dialogue between scholarly and academic sources and community sources was all rain's idea uh and that's well not all rain's idea it was andrew's idea too but you know rain's notion that what rain brings to the table is the notion that these cultural expressions are not historical artifacts these cultural expressions are living and breathing and everyday contemporary uh uh, articles of cultural production you know we didn't go anywhere we still exist and we're still creating creole art and we're still creating creole ideas and this is all despite the fact that we were colonized by americans that would prefer that we not exist as indigenous people that prefer that we did not exist as creole people uh, because integral to that process of americanization is a historical paradigm of white Anglo domination
2: if yeah no i don't and please deirdre if you have specific questions and things you want to have us tackle. I I agree with everything Daryl's saying, and I wanted to just take a step back a little bit Um, for listeners who don't have the book yet, or what's the book about, right? Or how is it framed? Um, Just, you know, just the title, I would start there. And I think Daryl's sharing the story of, you know, when I first started doing research, uh, um, you know, for my doctoral dissertation, it was on Louisiana Creoles. One thing I always knew, right? So um, as growing up Creole, my father's Creole, my mom's um, african american uh mix and one thing i always knew is that people have this a couple things right the first thing they'll tell you if you say you're creole is they imagine um french speaking black folks right so it's a very simplistic kind of view or bourgeoisie or passing all these kind of racial kind of tropes that are um you know, kind of old, there's some truth to some things, but they're also a little bit old. But I think to build on what Daryl was saying, the the, our, the book is about a response, I think, um, and, and to two works that were done before, Sybil Kine's book, uh, which was an anthology called Creole um, Legacy, um, or yeah, I think it was Creole Legacy. Uh, and so Kine's book was an interesting one, but it didn't really engage back with the community. Um, We're also, I think, building off of a Native American studies book, Reasoning Together, where there were community responses. But the title, Peoplehood, this is what Daryl's referring to. So when we think about like French and Spanish being there, the historical context, all throughout that period, but to this very moment and day when people do what we did and figure out how we're related. In fact, I'm closer, as Daryl was mentioning, to some of my probably fourth, fifth. We don't even say that, right? I mean, they're just cousins. Um, And, you know, if they're older than you, you, they're your aunt or your uncle. They're not even your cousin anymore, right? Um, But peoplehood is what ties this whole book together. Some might say sovereignty or self-determination. A peoplehood is how do we see our peoplehood matrix is what we talk about in the book, is we want to blow up that idea of Creoles as these Black-white people are living in this binary, so that's where the Afro-indigeneity, right? People of African descent are indigenous in a different context, not in the Americas. People of American Indian, you know, backgrounds are also indigenous. We want to talk about the full complexity of the Creole experience, and not just in a historic context, but we also want to talk about it in that contemporary context. And the book is divided into, um, you know, four sections to really speak to that. And in each section, there's a chapter written by an academic, followed by one or two community responses to what's been written. Um, The first section is sacred histories from kinship to cultural resurgences. Uh, The second section is landscapes from homelands to food and health. Such an important thing to, you know, as someone who's done a lot of work around critical mixed race studies too, for people who come from like multi-generational mixed backgrounds, Um, like pretty much most Latino people, like Creole people, like most American Indian people, even at this point. Um, You know, it's really, I think, important that we not just talk about, oh, we want to assert our identity or, uh, you know, it's not just about identity anymore politics. It's how that identity impacts how we engage with land nature, food, other people, culture. Um, the third section is on languages, which is so important um, in terms of preserving, continuing to the, the language. So it's languages, literacy, and bodies. And there's some great stuff in here where I've never seen much written about body image, body shape, um, the health issues specific in you know Creole and other Black Indian or Afro-Indigenous um, communities. LGBT queer studies. And then the final section, bringing it home really to that idea of peoplehood, is the last section is called Ceremonials and Cultural Practice. Um, And it really looks at some of the activist work, what people have done, Um, and their testimonials from our community members, from our elders who we acknowledge and thank for continuing the culture and not letting it die. Because there was a book written many years ago, um, right, The Forgotten People, um, and Creoles, you know, kind of took issue with that, right, that we're not a forgotten people. Then um, I think this book is a response in some ways to a new generation of, you know, Creole people who are refusing binary representations of who they are um, for a sort of more complex, nuanced um you know, really engagement with all of, of of their varied, our varied experiences.
1: Now, how is this book similar or different from the popular book, Reasoning Together?
2: Mm, I think that the engagement with um, uh, Blackness and uh, is central here. I would also say in terms of some of the discussion around specific problems or issues like health, Um, that are discussed in a little bit more detail. Um, I do think you have similar things around sort of this notion of, uh, of peoplehood or critical thinking, right? It's about asserting an intellectual tradition in Native communities, but one that is rooted not just in sort of academic trajectories, but also those from community. I think that's what we kind of have in common with that book is that both are kind of doing this work of making sure that this is um from the community right that it's coming from that place i think again though what is different uh is is really definitely this focus on looking at how has afro indigeneity itself as a category um both historically and in the present and culturally linguistically and and otherwise um how has that um impacted uh louisiana creole people and their and, and our work um, to be recognized as a people, right? Um, so I, I, that, that's what I would I would say.
1: Tell us more about those communities. You talk about Cane River. You talk mm. about Lake Charles. Tell us about what you found in the various communities.
2: Mm. Um, well, as Daryl, I think, was mentioning a little bit about... Uh, you know, uh, New Orleans and some other um, places, I think what's powerful is that we have to remember, and this was something I talked about in a book I wrote many, many years ago on Louisiana Creoles, from that dissertation that I refer to, um, focused on Native American identity, Louisiana Creoles, uh, mixed race identity and cultural recovery, because what I was interested in is what are the, what are the cultural places uh, where Native identity shows up in, in, in Creole communities, or where does where do those practices, traditions show up? But I would say the reason I'm bringing it up is because the Louisiana Creole Heritage Center in Natchitoches at that time, back then, this is the early, two, actually late 90s, 97, 98 through 2002 or so, they identified, I think, 30, 40, what they called Creole colonies or village, villages, they called them, all very unique and different. Um, I think that, uh, like, Architecture, for example, if you think about New Orleans, we will immediately notice the architectural structures, uh, the French and Spanish influences there, um, as well as African influence um, in some ways as well, I would say. And then when you look to places in the southwest, like Opelousas, where my family's from, or Bayou Mallette, um, or you go a little bit north, right, up into Cane River and Natchitoches, these communities, I think what they have in common was... Often religion, not all, you know, but religion does play a a key role in that. But I think it's this sense of peoplehood is what connects every one of those Creole communities and villages. It's um, meeting after Sunday and, you know, going and hanging out with your cousins or, uh, you know, going to your, you know, your mama's house or your nan's house. Um, Those sort of kind of common threads, right? And so... Uh, I think those connections to land. But what I also want to say is what we also recognize is that it's not just those communities in Louisiana, it's a diaspora, right? We know historically how many Creoles actually left Louisiana because of Americanization that was coming, right? That Daryl talked about earlier. So many went. We, we've heard a bit about Haitian and Dominican folks moved, coming into New Orleans, but we also are into Louisiana. But not so much about Creoles leaving and going into places like southern Mexico, Veracruz, Tampico. And right. And, but also that Creoles and are going all back over. To now. What's that?
0: And going back to Haiti.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so, and they're all over now, right? Where Daryl's at in New York, uh, you know, it's been a place not, uh, Chicago has been huge where Creoles relocated, certainly California. Is another place. So we are, Creole people are everywhere. And people, what I've noticed and learned over time, and I think the book talks about too, to a certain extent, people carry that with them. They carry those stories, they carry that memory. I love that Daryl started with how we talk about the cousin thing, and it doesn't matter how far, because I can go to some state, never have met this person, they're, you know, who knows, maybe a fifth, sixth cousin. You would think it was my sibling or something, and I haven't seen them in forever, and they're cooking, or that people carry with them this cultural um, ethic, if you will, or sense of community um, that is undying. It's undying.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I just wanted to say, you know, p- part of that connectivity that Andrew's talking about historically is the result of. You know, 150 years worth of endogamous marriage, you know, culturally endogamous, you know, where Creole people only really married other Creole people. And sometimes you just had to leave your community to go somewhere else to find, you know, someone to marry from another community. So what you end up with is, for example, you know, New Orleans is this sort of urban center, right? But people from New Orleans would go and and, and marry people from Bayou Tesh would marry people from New Iberia, would marry people from Natchitoches, and and vice versa. You know, you would have people from all of these uh, communities in northern Louisiana, southwest Louisiana, who would meet people from New Orleans and then would leave the city to 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 go out and live on the the, the bayou or the prairie. So that what you ended up with was a consistent cultural expression, regardless of where you were. You know, there's this sort of Creole triangle. That's the Tash, New Orleans, in Louisiana. That's the Tash, New Orleans, and, and Natchitoches. Where you have people who are participating concurrently in this process of cultural production that goes, you know, on for... Well, that's still going on right now. You know, one really good uh, article uh, essay in that book... Is about the production of filet. And it doesn't matter where you go in Louisiana, everybody knows what filet is. Now, not everybody necessarily cooks with it, but everybody understands what it is, and everybody recognizes that it is an integral part of the, the culinary culture that we all practice. And that sort of commonality, I think enables people who have never met one another, but who recognizes those sort of cultural markers. Because, you know, recognizing those cultural markers, what it means is, is wait a minute, this person isn't a stranger. In fact, I bet if I, if I probe long enough, I can figure out not only that we are related, but how we are related to. And that makes interactions between Creole people just different.
1: Now tell us the difference between Creole and Cajun.
2: <laughs> Cajuns uh, are Creole Acadians. Die like that. Dude, dude, should we? You want to give a little more background and more background why we're probably laughing? I mean, uh, I mean, I think there, you're. I mean, people absolutely. I
0: over this man. <laughs> What's that? People fight over
2: this. No, abs- no, absolutely. No, I hear you. It's interesting. I mean, I'll just jump in here and Daryl, you know, definitely jump back in. I mean, a really good friend, colleague of ours, Christoph um, Landry, has written and talked a lot about this. And I think the reason, uh, let's see, you said they're Acadian Creoles or Cajun Creoles. How did you put it, Daryl? Creole Acadians. Creole Acadians. So I think what it is, is, you know, uh, Christoph's work really speaks to this very well. And he talks about how particularly during the 1970s, some say even earlier, a little bit earlier, but especially in the 70s and the 80s at the sort of this height, um, there was a Cajunization process in Louisiana where everything was made Cajun and popular and commercialized so that when people think about Louisiana, they're like, oh, I love them, C- that Cajun food and Dirty rice, like we don't call it dirty rice, we call it rice dressing. Okay, like that became this sort of thing. But the Acadians, right, who left or were expelled, came from Nova Scotia that's part of their story, were exiled here. Christoph and others, we also would agree with that. They would they blended into an already existing culture, they intermarried with Creoles. Most of us, like Daryl said, we both are Gidris or Giddy, as my dad says. Um, they're originally Arcadian, right? Or Acadian, a- Cajun, right? That's how they uh, c- got to Cajun from the accent, Acadian, right? So, you know, they are our cousins. However, historically, it was a fighting thing because Cajuns were mostly in rural areas. They were seen to, quite simply put, my dad used to say, because people would say, "Oh, you're a c- oh, you're a Cajun, you're from Louisiana." He's like, I won't cuss on the radio but he he would cut he cussed. <laughs> and he told them I know uh F and Cajun. He said Cajuns is white folks and Creoles is black folks. And that was the generational way in which they lived. I mean that was the context of how they talked about it not knowing that many of the very Cajun people he was talking about were also were our relatives, right? They were intermarried, ate similar foods, particularly in the rural Um, places and Southwest places. Um, So it's a fight because I think Creoles were all, you know, the quote unquote, you know, more, um, you know, educated, um, things like that. So to be called a Cajun in some ways to Creoles, um, I think was a bit of an insult. I think that's evolving and changing now. But it's funny because Americanization did It continued to do its work after the purchase and, you know, at reconstruction into that 1970s, 1980s period where people think Louisiana and they're thinking about Cajuns and not really sure, you know, uh, what that really is. Right. What are our popular cultural references to Creoles? Beyonce. People don't even really, you know, fully understand, I think, still what. Uh, Creole people are; these are kind of contested categories. But anyway, that was a long way to, but to make sure to, to really give why it's a, a a hot topic. I think sometimes, and what I think we and folks like Christoph have have, have done a good job to really talk about, you know, where they are, the Cajuns are of Creole culture, right? We all share Creole culture. Yeah, uh, you
0: know, let, let me say this: that every significant artifact of Cajun cultural identity is a part of a cultural context uh, that is inseparable from Creole Louisiana. You know, there's Cajun gumbo and all that. So they don't make gumbo in Nova Scotia. All right, gumbo is an African word. And that cultural practice that has been identified with Cajun people is ultimately a a product of Creolization. Um, At one point, because the identity of, of Louisiana Creole uh became associated with people of color, uh white Creoles in Louisiana en masse between roughly the eighteen eighties and the nineteen thirties or so, just vacated the Creole identity. They 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 no longer referred to themselves as Creole, then they became French. Uh or then they became Franco-American, or they became Acadian, uh, which played into this sort of notion of whiteness insofar as you say Canada and people think about white people um, way, in the same way that you say Creole, Louisiana, and people imagine black people. But, you know, like Andrew just said, Andrew's a Gidry. I'm a Gidry. The Gidries arrive in Louisiana from from Acadia as a result of the Le Grand Dérangement, You know, my grandparents were Terrios. It's another family that ended up in Louisiana as a result of Le Grand Dérangement. Um, but if I were to walk, you know, down the street of, you know, in St. Martin, uh, declaring myself Cajun, you know, people would look at me askew, you know, precisely because at this point, these terms have been sort of subst- have been used as substitutes for racialized terms for i for black and white identities that you know that America demands be separate but within the context of Latin Louisiana we're never really separate you know white people practice creole culture black people practice Creole culture. Indigenous people practiced Creole culture and the descendants of all three of those groups, of which there were many, also practiced Creole culture. So, I mean, the, the question of what's the difference between Cajuns and Creoles I think is, is a question that's predicated on a dichotomy that doesn't really exist outside of people's racial politics.
1: Now, tell us about Jim Crow, the anti-blackness and the anti-Indian racism in Louisiana, and how this was an attempt to really destroy the communities.
0: Mm. Well, Jim yeah. Crow is an extension of a larger process of colonial violence in it. Uh, the, the imposition of white supremacy uh, happens as soon as Europeans set foot on on native soil. Uh Jim Crow was just a a reiteration of that same colonial agenda updated for uh, a post-Civil Rights Amendment uh, uh, reality that happens after the the Civil War. Uh, Creating a, a group of people, that is, colored people, who could be legally discriminated against served the interests of white oligarchs just as much as a category, categorical disenfranchisement of anyone who wasn't white served their interests prior to the Civil War. So, I mean, it's just all colonial. It's just all colonial racism and, and garbage.
2: And I just to piggyback and add on to it, I mean, I think that continuing kind of colonial legacy right is about uh has always been about a displacement a dispossession of indigenous people about a um virulent sort of violence against black and native women's bodies right and we know in louisiana creole women were central as were actually many, you know, African um, and American Indian women, uh, you know, who maybe were not, you know, earlier on, who were the sort of matriarchs of, of, of various families, that they held these things together. But that anti-blackness, that anti indigeneity can be seen because something that I talk about it as as a bloodless genocide or a paper genocide that we don't just erase Native people, um, you know but through murder, right? We, you know, right. Or through the physical forms of genocide, but what about cultural genocide? Um, And so when I think, you know, right, we think about Louisiana Creole people, uh, the fact that people don't, haven't historically thought of our communities as indigenous communities, our peoplehood or our right to exist as a unique group is very much, right, uh, 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 about an Americanization process that Jim Crow You know, continues. Right. We see it now. Right. There was just a senator last week who tweeted after Roe v. Wade was overturned. He tweets Plessy next. You know, let's do Plessy and Brown versus Board of Education next. Excuse me. Right. And so I think that speaks to this way, and not even realizing, right? A Creole man, right? Plassey, who 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 stood up, right, and helped to 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 um, lead work around desegregation, but you know, <clears throat> and some of these uh, you know Jim Crowisms that still live with us. But I think that in Louisiana, just to give a specific context, um, there was an act called Act Two Twenty, um, and when it was passed. Um, it basically, this statute changed the racialization or the uh, racial category of uh, American Indians who were counted as colored, basically, um, among Creoles and um, free black folk and uh, Asian uh, groups that were in Louisiana. And then you had a white category. Well, they clouded, right, and wanted to separate because they were trying to turn Indians into black only people, right? So as Americanization happens, right? I think that was the other impact of Jim Crow is you see people leaving maybe. You see more encroachment of Americanization. I can recall speaking to older Creoles, you know, at one point, talk recalling their grandparents and saying, Oh you guys have to change now. You can't be Creole anymore. Like that racially, right? Or in school, what kind of language, you know, Daryl was speaking about this earlier, what, you know, language you could speak. Languages, uh, Ngugi Wathiongo says, right? And uh, Decolonizing the mind. Language is a carrier of culture, right? And so in some ways we can reinvent, I think through English, but it, does it carry the culture in the same way? So I think for a lot of Creole folk, Maybe we could still continue to be Creole culturally. I think there becomes a a racialization process, which is about denigrating black folk and erasing Indian folk. And and that is the sad history, not just of Louisiana, um, but of, you know, the United States and many other, you know, settler or, you know, states.
1: Now, tell us about Mrs. Janet Colson and the Creole Heritage Center. You uh, have a little chapter about her in your book.
2: Yeah. Jana was like a mom, uh, or not like, was a mom to me. Uh, you know, when I first um, started doing research uh, back in the 90s and found out there was a Creole Heritage Center, I was like, whoa, wow, this is cool. I remember showing up, my cousins in Raywood, Texas, and Fontenose. Um, who that's how Rain and I are connected, knows and prudomes. um, some cousins drove me up to Natchitoches from Raywood, Texas, which is on that border to Lake Charles. Um, and I remember meeting Janet and she was this amazing, dedicated elder who's now an ancestor who kept the culture going in many ways. So she, you know, helped create, she had a vision. Right. She says, I always quote her, she said, my daddy thought Louisiana was heaven. And um, she carried that that drive and that passion. So she organized international conferences that brought people who may identify as Creole from the Caribbean or um, other parts of the world um, together. Uh, she organized cultural events um and really brought a lot of uh visibility to the continuance of our people there's been other folks um i think uh, daryl knows better gilbert martin who we also recognize who did this kind of work terrell delphin uh, who did this kind of work and it's interesting that they're all the people are spread out in different areas a lot of them like janet um and and terrell were in in cane river and natchitoches um others were in like the southwest or in new orleans um And so she's one of what I would describe a culture bearer, culture keeper, um, a medicine person, really, because what she did um, allows our our people to to continue. And so this book is is in many ways a continuance of her 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 amazing work of her legacy and that of our all of our ancestors, you know, um, our parents and our grandparents and great grandparents.
0: You know, I think that after the 1960s, the sort of black is beautiful movement. I think a lot of creole people in louisiana were forced to to make what i think is sort of a false choice between choosing to be black or choosing to be creole and certainly in new orleans uh, the notion was certainly when i was growing up in the 1970s and 1980s uh that Claiming Creole identity was often seen as controversial and divisive, especially by African-Americans. In fact, it was a few years ago that uh, Beyonce did some song where she referred to you know, her, her African-American mama, and her Creole dad, or something like that. And there was a woman, an uh, African-American woman from New Orleans, who wrote an essay in response to it, who claimed to be deeply triggered uh, by Creole people declaring themselves Creole people. Uh, because uh, she interpreted that based on her experience in New Orleans uh, as Creole people just not wanting to be associated with Black people, and so there's this sort of you know pressure on Creole people, which you know itself is also a manifestation of Americanization because it's African Americans who are advancing these these arguments. Um, there, there's this pressure to to abandon. Creole uh, identity and Creole self-identification. And so really, you know, it's not until the sort of 90s that you sort of get this Creole revival happening, you know, which Colson was sort of an integral part of that Creole heritage festival. And, you know, it happens in places like Natchitoches. It happens in places like Lafayette. It doesn't happen in New Orleans initially uh, because New Orleans is like this sort of epicenter of the the that pressure of Americanization. You know, it's an urban environment. Uh, it's the place in Louisiana that's the most thoroughly integrated into the larger sort of American economy. Uh, so for me, you know, I left New Orleans in 1994 to, to, to go all over the world. You know, I was in Spain for a while. I was in England for a while. I was in San Francisco for a while. Um, but when I came back to, to, to Louisiana in... 2002, I guess it was. All of a sudden, you know, it's like there's this Creole Heritage Fest- uh, Heritage Center in Natchez. There's a creole there's a Louisiana Creole uh, uh, academic conference happening in, in October in New Orleans. Like there's this massive cultural resurgence and revival. And you know, for me as a Creole person who had you know been everywhere and back and then ended up in New Orleans, the entire discourse and the entire dialogue about Creole identity had just completely changed in 10 years. You know, to be frank, like, that's actually when it it was in that aftermath that I actually read Andrew's book for the first time, which, you know, changed the entire way that I perceived myself in relation to, to the rest of the world. Because... You know, I think, and I'm talking now about Andrew's book, uh, Louisiana Creole and Native American uh, Mixed-Race Identity. Now, you know, Andrew was the first person who I'd ever read who said, you know, look, this whole black-white binary thing that has been imposed on us is just fake. It's artificial. It's not real. And it doesn't speak to the way that we perceive reality or the way that we experience our lives. And so you know anyone who says that it's impossible to be black and to be native and to be you know French to be creole to be american all at the same time is lying to you and that changed that that changed my life it was after reading that book that i was able to perceive a vantage from which to artic- articulate the 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 argument that i made in my dissertation which ended up being my own book uh R- Race and uh, uh creole the book that i just published last year on creole new wallace um so you know that's who the Colsons were to me they were a part of a cultural renaissance uh and yeah. a movement that is certainly articulated in this book that Demands to that represents Creole people demanding to be considered as a people on their own terms rather than being interpreted through the eyes of others, in particular, others who have never been culturally sympathetic to us.
1: Now, what is the message? You have anything else to say, Andrew?
2: Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I think Daryl hit it on the head, just that there's a kind of cultural... Kind of tourism that happens, and I think as Daryl was just New Orleans when I think about why that was. But I wanted to say that you know people—it's like any many groups, just like American other American Indian communities—we want to see the folks at the powwow, we want to see the performative, so we want to see. I was going to say music played a huge part. I think in the interest, right in the eighties, Queen Ida who Queen Ida, who was touring. You know, for example, Abuzu Chavis, these folks who were touring all over the world in Europe, um, all over the U.S., brought some attention. But that's also simultaneously when this stuff was being branded as Cajun. And so it would be palatable in a particular way. Um, And so I think it's been interesting because folks like Janet and that renaissance that Daryl's talking about, I think, push back on the ways in which people were trying to define, um, you know, define who we are. So I just kind of wanted to throw that in that I think Zydeco. Played an interesting role too in um, the visibility of Louisiana, but then also, ironically, even though they were listening to Zydeco, not necessarily Cajun. It was a it was a combination. It was yet another formation of. A mixture, right of um, Creole sounds with, and I don't know if I'd even say there actually were Cajun sounds. People say that was Cajun it was really French and fiddle music was the influence. Um, and the rest is all Creole, you know, so uh, but anyway, I, I think that was also important to to just add.
1: Well, what is the overall message you would like for your audience to leave with? once they finish your book? what what is the message?
2: I would say, (laughs) go ahead, ahead, Daryl.
0: Uh, Pick up the baton. We're, we're doing our part for our era. You know, like Andrew said early on, you know, Sybil Kine published her book on, on, on Creole people more than 20 years ago now. And you know, for its time, it was a, it was a, it was a valiant and very valuable and very sorely needed effort uh, but that effort also needed to be updated. Uh, there are uh, discourses uh, that exist today that just simply did not exist when Sybil Kind published her work. And, you know, me and Andrew and Rain uh, all very purposefully and all very thoughtfully picked up this project uh, as, a, as, a, as a conscious effort to continue this discourse for whoever the next generation of Creole scholars is gonna be. you know, We're doing our part, we're leaving our bit for posterity.
2: Absolutely, and then I would just add just, actually I wanna read just briefly um, from our conclusion. The chapters in this volume are a beginning, not an ending. We hope that other scholars, both Louisiana Creoles and other Afro-Indigenous communities will join in conversations about recognition and resistance within Afro-Indigenous and Latinx people across the Americas. It is our hope and intention that this book will inspire more conversations about the everyday realities of race, gender, class, and equity among people of mixed Afro-Indigenous descent in the Americas. There's an old French expression, Les haricots no sont pas salés. When translated, it means the snap beans aren't salty, or basically they just aren't ready or the food isn't done. And so as we end, we say the work isn't done. The snap beans, the stories, the conversations, and the interventions into the field are still not seasoned or salty enough. May the work continue in a good way. And I think that's what we want. We want people to have critical conversations about something that's impacting other communities across the the Americas. And that's the question of, you know, blackness and indigeneity and people who are both and not either or. Right. So as people moved and start using terms like, BIPOC instead of POC, let's say who we mean, let's be specific. And in this case, we're trying to be specific about telling the story of our people. And as Gerald said, may that good work continue. And and I hope more generate the next generation. I'm really happy, right? Because what I can say is when I started this, like doing this like 25, I don't know, years ago, and I felt lonely, very lonely. Now there's Creole freaking Facebook, Creole Facebook groups with 30, 40,000 people on it that a younger and a new generation is keeping the culture going. And we have Janet uh, and Gilbert and Terrell and, you know, folks like that um, to really thank for that work.
1: I have taken up enough of your time. What is the next project you're going to be working on? Oh, no.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I'm working on a, a I'm working on an article right now for a Louisiana Creole Journal, and um, you know, I mean, I'll be honest that right now there's so many just shocking and horrible things happening in the United States that you know the, the the idea of projecting myself into the future is 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 not an easy proposition one way or the other. But you know, I'm interested in the the history of of American labor. I'm, history, I'm interested in the history of uh, Afro-Indigenous people. Uh, I am interested in the history of uh, struggle against colonial violence in the Western Hemisphere. And you know, the the parts that I know the best are the parts that I imagine I'll focus on, um, because I believe that scholars are at their best when they're writing about what they know about.
2: Yeah. And for me, I actually am finally doing something I've been wanting to do for a long time. It, it, it is um, finished. We're doing some editing. I'm actually working with, with um, Rain actually on this because it's a press that she and a, another cousin of ours, Carolyn Dunn, they run a press called That Painted Horse Press, uh, mostly publishing poets um, and other creative writers. So I have a poetry cookbook uh, coming out later this year called Gumbo Circuitry, Poetic Routes gastronomic legacy. So if you want to taste some of the things we've been talking about too, that food, that fusion of African, Latin, indigenous uh, cuisine, it, it's definitely in there along with some some poetry about the land of, and uh, Louisiana. And then I have another book that I've been working on forever, so I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully it'll um, get get done this year. It's called Thrive in Circuitry, Queer, Afro, Indigenous, Futurity, and Kinship. And um, that's contracted with University of Washington Press. Yeah.
1: Well, we'll be looking forward to all of your interesting projects. And thank you again for being on the program.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
1: Thanks for having me.